Hello, and a very warm welcome to the Understanding Users podcast, brought to you by Researchable UX. It's great to have you with me. I'm your host, Mike Green. I'm a freelance user research lead and digital consultant based in the UK. Over the coming weeks, I'm going to be chatting to various digital experts who I've had the pleasure of working with in recent years. They're from various disciplines, including user research, UX design, development, and product management. And they'll even be a digital business owner or two. I'll be talking to them about how they came to be in their current roles, what they've learned along the way, and what advice they may have for others getting into the field. These are intended to be relaxed, informal chats with professionals who are keen to share their experiences. So sit back and enjoy. In this episode of Understanding Users, Katie shares her strong belief in technology as a force for good, and she talks about the importance of early generative research when designing digital services. She suggests that good user researchers are not only fascinated by other people and their behaviour, but are also self-reflective, while at the same time, crucially, needing to be great communicators. Finally, she plays my three-card challenge to share her favourite UX tool, favourite technique, and a trend she sees in the future. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the episode. So my guest this time is Katie John. And Katie is Head of User Research at Caution Your Blast, uh, an organisation I've had the great pleasure of working with uh, in recent months. And uh, it's great to be able to talk to her about her career and um, uh, her expertise. And it's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Mike. I'm so excited to be here. And thank you so much for asking me to be involved. I feel like it's a great pleasure. You're very welcome indeed. So I announced you there as head of user research at Caution Your Blast. So tell me a little bit about your role and about Caution Your Blast as an organisation. Yes. So my beloved Caution Your Blast, and I'm glad, Mike, that you're with us because I think you can attest to how wonderful it is there. Um, But we're essentially a group of, we started, well, it started with our wonderful, um, what's his title? Um, Ben Stewart, our Guru. Founder, guru. Sage. <laughs> yes, all things digital. So Ben started as a kind of one-man band helping transform organizations. And then I think we kind of all drew together moths to flames thinking we want to make digital a force for good. So I joined when there was six of us and there was service designer, director of digital, um, devs. So I joined at a really exciting time when we were like a perfectly formed multidisciplinary team and we'd go in and we'd solve problems together and it'd be wonderful. And then we started winning bigger and bigger contracts and we were like, gosh, we need more people. So over the last year, we've been on this crazy campaign of hiring more and more people which means I've had the pleasure of growing a user research team from the ground up. So it was just me as head of user research. And now I have two uh, user researchers I work with, some wonderful associates, you being one of them, Mike, who brings so much to our team. (laughs) And also we've now got a new joiner. So we'll be uh, three permanent user researchers. So in the space of a year, we've grown from, say, seven people to 20 permanent members of staff by next year and in probably a mix of say 15 to 20 associates depending on what sort of products we're going on what sort of projects we have going so it's been massive growth for us but super exciting 
Um, and I think the thing I love about CYB or Caution and Blast is that we pick projects that we care about. So there's been times where um, we've been approached to maybe do a bit of work and we're thinking, oh, this doesn't really fit who we are as people. It's not going to have an impact or, 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 you know, a good impact on the world. And we kind of walk away from it. And I think that comes from our founder, Ben's really principled attitude. You know, he is so passionate about using tech for good that he's willing to walk away from things, even, you know, not at the detriment of the company, but in the sense mm-hmm. that he, his his feeling of I want technology to be used for good overrides any sort of will work for, you know, tobacco companies, for instance. Um, So I think, you know, we're a band of people that have joined together to solve problems who have a passion um, for using technology for good. And and that's why I love working there and why I'm so, you know, I'm never leaving, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. If only everyone could say the same. And and tech as a force for good, as you say, is a really lovely way to kind of frame it. Mm. Tell me a little bit about yourself, Katie, and your own kind of journey into into digital or through digital, if you like, and to where you got to. How, mm. how did you end up where you are? So I think like many user researchers, I studied psychology. I think psychology lends it so, it's, itself so well to user research in the sense that you learn about people. You learn about how people make decisions. You learn about the biases they bring to how we're all very irrational people, essentially, who make decisions based on past experience. And we're not very good decision makers. And I think all of that um, theory is so applied in user research that it's so incredibly useful. So I studied psychology. I was then a researcher um, actually looking at facial mimicry and using, what was it called? Electromyography, I think was the name. So essentially electrodes on people's faces and measuring if I smile at you, Mike, will you smile back at me? Um, And although I loved designing the study, I loved doing all the background research, I loved analyzing, there was something missing for me in the sense that it didn't have a tangible impact. And I don't know whether this is because I'm a millennial and, you know, I've got a short attention span or my um, delayed gratification isn't the best, but I was missing that, okay, I can see how this research is going to add to a body of knowledge, but how is it going to help people? And I found that really demotivating after a time, not seeing that impact. So one of the wonderful people I work with kind of talked to me a little bit about well, you know, there's these people that do this research, but in commercial settings. And, you know, it's it's a great place if you like the fast pace. And I thought, hell yeah, that sounds like a bit of me. Um, so my first role was at a big Indian tech company. And we mainly worked with financial sector clients, um, which was such a steep learning curve for me. I was thrust into this world you know I all I had on me really was my understanding of how to design good research but in kind of more of a clinical setting or more in a um, academic setting rather Um, and then I was suddenly introduced to all of these new methods that were kind of familiar but also very unfamiliar in the sense of I've never heard of usability testing before but I, I understand like how why it would be useful um so that first role was whew you know, an experience because I had to develop all of this new terminology, all of this new way of thinking, um, because I'd also never been exposed to kind of design thinking, you know, speaking to the users, 
coming up with hypotheses, designing ways to make their lives better. This was all new to me, although weirdly familiar because of psychology. Um, I then, after I joined the Indian tech company, moved to government digital service, which was probably, you know, one of my favorite places to work and where I learned so much. I was lucky enough to kind of move between different teams while I was at GDS. One of my favorite being the accessibility team there. Um, it's where I learned so much about the different types of people that use technology and and what a brilliant job we've done in many cases of excluding them. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's a real, yeah, it's a real passion of mine as well, because uh, my mother has an impairment um, and it means like the physical world excludes her a lot. And so I could see the same exclusion happening in technology. And I was just so passionate about that not being the case, especially because it doesn't have to be that way. You know, technology, we it, we really can make it as inclusive to anyone as possible. Um, so I, I learned so much about assistive technology, um, the different ways people think and the different things we need to do in order to support people to use technology. Um, and also it was my first time actually working with service designers who, you know, can be user researchers, best friends, really. We, we are so similar in some of the stuff we do, but they have a slightly different lens um, and working with them really helped expand my horizons in terms of you can build excellent WYSI UIs, but you really need to consider that end-to-end -end service, you know, those offline touch points, you really need to be considering solving a whole problem for users. So that was really, really formative in my thinking. Um, and then I moved to Parliament Digital Service, which again was a whirlwind of an experience. Um, it was the first time that I'd truly experienced a place where um, user research and design was so in its infancy and not in terms of the user-centered design people there. There were some brilliant people there, but in terms of the organization and their maturity, they really weren't there. So the tactics that I had to use were very different to what I did at GDS. So at the government digital service, you know, using the service standard, using the service manual of people's bread and butter, it's understood that you're gonna go speak to the users. Whereas at Parliament Digital Service, it was, why, why would we do that? You know, what value am I gonna gain from that? So I had to learn. And just to be clear, um, for people unfamiliar with it, GDS is typically developing sort of citizen-facing services. Yes. Who are the users of the services that Parliament Digital Service are creating? So is it just people within Parliament? No. So it was, well, it's a mixture. So Parliament Parliamentary Digital Service is responsible for all of Parliament's digital real estate. So whether that be Parliament citizens facing um, websites to also the um, all the systems and products that help Parliament run. Um, so it, it was kind of both ends of the spectrum. Um, but helping them understand how user research and design could be useful in them to them to create products was a, a real challenge in some ways. Um, so I really had to amend my tactics in terms of how do I speak about what I do? How do I um, find those low hanging fruits that I know they really care about that I potentially don't think is the most strategically important research to do? 
but can help me win favor with them. So I got a lot more tactical in my research in a way that I never had to do at GDS because it was so kind of ingrained in everyone that user research was so important. Um, and then I ended up at Caution Your Blast and we've had such luck in working with such wonderful clients. So we've worked with um, people in local government. We've had um, central government clients, the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office being our most recent and now a big global furniture company is one of our clients who are also wonderful. Um, so I've, I, what I've really enjoyed about Caution Your Blast is the differences and experiences you can get. So, you know, each client brings something new. And I'm someone that lives on that kind of first few weeks within a job, you know, when you're like, oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I feel like it really sets my skills and fine tunes me as a user researcher to be put in those positions again, where I'm like, okay, I need my toolbox. I need to work out how I'm going to solve this problem in a different way than if I'm in an organization for quite a long time and I'm trying to learn something. I feel like um, being put into a situation where you're so unsure of everything helps you really refine your user research skills. So that's why I love working at CYB so much because we do get that experience of moving around and dealing with different clients and having to work out the best way of working with them. And yeah, absolutely. And it's that sort of old cliche of the what's the image? The duck that's serene on the surface and paddling furiously under the water. And it's, it's kind of that's everyone me. think, yeah, that's we've all been there. We all are there very often. But uh, yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, absolutely. some people love that and some people hate that. Yeah. For me, I certainly love feeling that kind of pressure of, okay, I really don't know what I'm doing here, but I can work it out. And that working out process is the bit that, you know, gets me out of bed in the morning. You know, it'll be, I've got a notepad by my bed and that's mm. where it's, I call it my genius book. <laughs> I write my ideas in the middle of the night because I'm so excited in new products to think, ah, okay, that's how that fits together. Um, so I need that kind of energy of, that, of starting a project in order to get me going. Mm. No, your passion is really coming through. It's it's great to hear. And it's, yeah, it's it's a world that people get very passionate about, understandably, because, uh, yes. you know, doing good and helping users is, is central to all that we do. Yes. So tell me a, a typical day as a, as a user researcher on a project. Uh, you know, what does it look like for you? So for me, it starts with, well, it's very important for me to start with some sort of team ceremony, whether it be a stand up or, you know, a little get together with the people I'm working with, because, User research doesn't work in silos. We can't just be, you know, doing whatever research we want to do. We need to be working with the team to understand their priorities. You know, I want to know what the dev is working on in my team so that I can help him or her or them. Um, or I need to know what my designer's doing because I need to know, okay, how can I fit my work to help you? So knowing what the team's doing every day is super important for me to start the day because it helps me define my priorities. Typically, user researchers, <laughs> worst nightmare, some form of recruitment, you know, it's always happening. You need to always be checking your emails because someone has emailed you at 1am saying they can fit you in in two weeks time. So that's an activity that I am constantly doing. Working with the team to, you know, depending on where we are in a project, define user research questions. Um, I tend to spend a lot of time trying to gather the questions from the team because I really want to know what do you need to know 
I'll then refine those down, share them with them, get them to understand what the difference is between a good and a bad question. We don't ask people what they like, for instance. Do you like it? We don't we don't care about that. <laughs> also, lots of time analyzing data. So whether it be um user research that I've done myself or desk research or any analytics I can get my hands on. I'm constantly trying to find different sources of data to play with to mm-hmm. provide richer and richer insights to my team. And then a lot of time is spent communicating, whether that be about my findings specifically, you know, I've done around, here's what I've learned, or whether it just be about my approach. So mm-hmm. I've realized um, that you have to take people on that journey. So a lot of my time is talking about, okay, I'm going to be doing interviews. The reason I do interviews is blah, blah, blah. This is what you're going to get out of it. Because you can't just turn up at someone's door with a present they haven't asked for, (laughs) or sometimes, (laughs) you know, a message that's not wholly welcome, that's totally welcome. So I try and involve whoever the stakeholders, you know, if it's in government policymakers Mm. in all the things I do, so that they don't get a nasty surprise at the end. They were involved in the making of these insights, for instance. And I feel like it's a lot easier message to deliver them. So it's a lot of team working, a lot of bringing people into the world of the user, whether they want to or not. You know, it's medicine. You need it to create a good product. <laughs> um, so, yeah, a lot of collaboration in my day, I'd say. And, and a lot of what you say there, yeah, I've had similar conversations with previous guests and one of them in particular was talking about the power of narrative, exactly like you've said, is that what you've learned and then how do you transmit that to wider members of the team, particularly, you know, in the government sphere, sort of policymakers and so on, to help kind of inform the work that you're doing. Yes, yes. Um, so what, what kinds of things do you produce, if you like, you know, that, that were deliverable that we kind of grown slightly, all of us about, what kind of things do you produce on the back of the work you've done to kind of help share and communicate those insights? Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of constantly changing the sort of things I produce. I don't, I don't like relying on um, the same old tricks I've done for, for however long. So where I do a lot of reading around different ways of kind of capturing my insights, my most favorite at the moment is using mental models by Indy Young. I've used them both in private and um, government and found that there's just such a brilliant way to communicate here's the task that your user is doing. You can recognize these tasks. And here is all the systems, products, people that underpin and offer a service to help people complete those tasks. And I've just found it such a powerful way to help policymakers or whoever I'm working with understand, gosh, there's massive gaps in the service we offer. Or, Mm. oh my gosh, that's so complex what we're doing. Like, why are we doing all these various different things? Um, so that's a tool I come back to quite often is mental models. I find it a really good way of communicating the entire ecosystem, if you like. Also things like, I keep it quite simple sometimes. So when I've worked with policymakers before, I've literally brought them in to our Miro board, which as you can imagine is a scatter of all things. Mm. And, and a Miro board is a, just for those listening, is a large interactive whiteboard tool that yes, we, kind of, yes. we all use and love, don't we? Because it's so brilliant. 
it's so brilliant. And so I will sometimes bring policymakers into those Miro boards and herd them around like cats where I'm <laughs> the fantastic functionality of follow me. And then inevitably someone moves something and they're like, oops, <laughs> sorry. Um, so I, I do bring them into our Miro boards and get them to walk through stuff with us. Because again, I don't like handing over assets without people seeing the process that we went through um and for instance with the mental models um we use them to help us understand what people what happens when someone dies abroad and what are the different mm. things that need to happen and turning that those insights that we derived into something was quite a mental leap for people because okay you've understood this whole world but how do you turn that into a product and what we could do with the Miro board was actually show the process of how we broke that down. So now we understand the tasks. Okay, what sort of things can we help people with these tasks? We can show, you know, all the ideating we did, why we threw some of those ideas away, and then how that turned into a thing. Um, so I also am a fan of not just refining assets and handing them over. I'm also a fan of just showing people the workings. Because I also think, you know, depending on the maturity of an organization, people don't always understand the amount of work that goes into what we do behind the scenes. Because, you know, you might look at my diary and think, oh, she's not got a lot of meetings in today. But that's because I'm busy in Miro trying to organize, work things out, you know, analyzing. And I think for those people that don't understand the sorts of things we do, it's good to see those workings out in play. Obviously, you've got your your slide decks, your usability mm. reports. They're always going to be the bread and butter. You know, if I need to communicate something to um, someone about some usability problems, I'm always going to go to a usability report and say, you know, here's your problems. We know this because we heard this. Here's here's what we need to do next. But yeah, I try I try and keep it. I try keep reinventing what I'm showing people. Mainly for me as well. I want to be a better researcher I want to make sure that whatever I'm making has the impact and can communicate what I need to so I'm, I'm constantly looking for new ways of sharing what I'm doing and again one of the lovely things about this world is the amount of sharing there is online and it's very yes. much open isn't it and you can google stuff and find whether it be on medium or linkedin or you know blog postings there's masses of people are keen to share ideas and best practice and so on which, which is yeah lovely. and I think that is the wonderful thing about this world is where I feel like um, user researchers and designers working in user-centered design we're all just people on a journey trying our best to make things better and that goes for our tools as well where people put themselves out there to say I tried something and it didn't work. Or I tried something and here you are. I've done all that hard work for you. Now you can start doing this. And that's what I love is we're constantly all on a journey to try and improve our practice and, and make ourselves more useful to teams. How can user researchers ensure that they have an impact on the product teams that they're dealing with? And, mm -hmm. and, and with, a, you know, with a view to kind of the most beneficial outcome for the end product or service that they're working with? Yeah. So I think there's a few things, a few musts. So... When you're thinking about your research, you really need to be aligning that to the biggest risks of the product. You really need to be working really closely with your product manager, your product owner, whoever, to understand, you know, what's keeping them up at night? What are they worrying about? What's their priority? Similarly, with your stakeholders, you need to treat 
those stakeholders a bit like your users. You need to understand what their motivations are, what um, what are their behaviors, what are their attitudes. All of that ensures that that deep understanding helps you ensure that you're aligning your research to what these people people care about most Mm. I will say going back to the kind of low-hanging fruit stuff sometimes you've got to do research that's both tactical and strategic and what I mean by that is you need to potentially do usability testing on a product that you know is absolutely awful in order to be able to do future research that's more generative in nature and you can actually you know understand the real needs Because sometimes people don't understand the value of doing that generative research and you've got to show them value in little chunks. So I've done this before where I wasn't allowed to do any form of generative research or any form of kind of contextual research but what I was allowed to do was usability testing Mm. so boy oh boy did I do usability testing (laughs) (laughs) and what I did was really try and communicate where those findings that we found from the from the testing could have been mitigated by doing earlier more generative style research so you know people um, do this and they are failing to do this in your product. But if we'd have known that that's how they work three months ago, we wouldn't have designed it like this, for instance. Mm-hmm. So constantly finding those ways to show why our methods have an impact or why the certain ways we do things um, helps create a better outcome. Mm-hmm. For me, it's also just constantly checking that the insights I'm giving people actually helps them do something with it. The last thing you want to do is do research that, you know, just sits on a shelf and no one does anything. It's both heartbreaking for you, but also a waste of time and money. So I want, you know, depending on what my research is about, I want to see the designer using that to inform their next iteration. I want to see the developer using that to think about, ah, okay, how should my system work? Or, you know, all the wonderful things devs do or the product manager thinking about, oh, okay, what should I, I should probably change my priorities off the back of this. It needs to be informing other people in the team. So I'm constantly keeping a watch of who's using it. (laughs) What have they done with it? What decisions have they made with it? Um, And I think user research is a very self-reflective practice because you you have to be really aware of the impact you're having otherwise. Um, and you need to change your behaviors if or the ways you're doing things if you're not having that impact because ultimately, you know, it's you're not affecting anything within the team if you're not aware um, of what you need to do. Very true. And if you end up in that space, then you're more of a passenger than actually exactly. a driver in the car, and in which case, what's the mm-hmm. point? Mm-hmm. Here's a question for you. What does user-centered design mean to you? Oh, that's a big question. User-centered design means a few things to me. So at the forefront, it means putting users at the heart of everything you do. So, you know, they need to be the thing that's driving the product forward. It also means to me a set of methods, um, a set of ways of doing things. So, you know, user-centered design has things like interviews, usability testing, contextual inquiries. There's a toolbox of things we do in user-centered design. But it's also a process in the sense we go from uncertainty, um, uncovering problems, understanding the user, moving to, you know, conceptual ideas, prioritizing those ideas, moving down to a more defined solution that we think is going to work, and then moving outwards to kind of 
refining those ideas, creating a usable and useful system to then improving that over time. So it, it's kind of three things, users, methods and process to me. I really like that. That's a really nice summary of, of yeah everything that we do. In terms of kind of the current world and the COVID world that sadly we're all still living through, what kind of impact would you say that's had on, on user research as a discipline and kind of the kinds of research that we can all do? Yeah, I think one of the biggest casualties of it is, you know, observation, observational, contextual inquiry sort of methods. They, It's really sad. So when... Um, when we first started working with the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, we were doing research into people getting married abroad. And we'd worked with policymakers, we'd interviewed users to understand the process they go through. Um, and what we'd done was we designed a um, digital tool to help people do the process online, for instance. And when the only time we realised that we'd got it entirely wrong <laughs> was actually when we went to a French embassy, sat down with them, sat, we were there for a good eight hours of the day, just sitting and watching them process these applications. And what we saw was, for instance, that to get the post, they received the post in a different building. They then had to walk that over, sit it down, and it sat in a pile for, say, a week or so. They then would pick up one letter they type that in the system. They then have to go to another part of the office to take the payment. They then need to take that receipt, photocopy that somewhere else. So all of those micro interactions that, you know, you don't see through a webcam uh, or people don't think to tell you, um, we would have missed. And all, that picture is so insightful for a stakeholder. I can tell them that story of, you know, your... Um, Pam in Paris is doing all of these things, which means that one application takes an hour from all the walking to all the scanning to all the stamping to all the manual inputting into the system. That's a massive amount of time. Um, and I think that is what's lost at the moment due to COVID is we can't see those micro interactions that people don't necessarily think to talk to you about. Mm. They'll explain their process because they're experts in their process. They miss out these things or they've done it for so long or it's always happened like that, that they don't think it's a problem. Mm. Whereas without seeing those things, we can't spot where we can actually intervene and remove that pain for them because they don't see it as pain anymore. So for me, that's the biggest thing. And also, you know, even down to usability testing, that rapport you build up with your users. Mm. So, you know, once I was doing um, research with a person who was visually impaired and I had to pick them up from the tube station, um, but that gave me 10 minutes to mm. chat to this person understand a little bit about their life, get them comfortable with what they were about to do. Now we jump on a call time is so limited it feels really cold there's so much time having to get people to understand how to share their screen and and you know I think that has a real impact as well on how the session goes people already feel like they failed if they're unable to share their screen and that has an effect I think on how the rest of the session goes mm. so it's not it's by no means perfect. I think we can still gleam a lot of insight with it being remote, but I do think we miss out on so much information by not being able to do things in person. Yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on. And what strikes me as well is the power of photos. 
And when you're able, like you were saying, to go out into the world and actually, you know, whether it be in somebody's office, whether if you're able, you know, people are kind enough to let you into their homes um, or just to sort of look over their shoulder, whether literally or metaphorically, and take photos of that with their permission and then share what you've seen exactly. with your own eyes as a researcher with the stakeholders. I've often found that when you're then sort of feeding all of your insights back, that can kind of, you know, stop a room dead if you show them a particular setup and go, this is what we saw. Exactly. That's when the penny drops or the you know, bag of pennies yeah. crashes down and people go, okay, now. <laughs> exactly. So, and they're like, oh, my gosh, I didn't realise it looked like that. And like, yes, yeah. that's the real world. And, and, and we've talked about, uh, you've mentioned with CYB, kind of obviously the government work you've done, but also the private sector yes. um, the, the piece that you're working on at the moment. I'm interested in your experience, what's kind of the difference in dealing with the public versus the private sector in terms of mm. as clients, as stakeholders? Yeah. Um, so I don't want to talk in kind of broad terms, but from my experience, I'm not saying yeah. everything's like this. But I found that government really cares about ultimately saving money and making efficiencies um, at the moment. Whereas where I found with private sector is they potentially care more about creating delightful experiences. And I think the reason for that is, for instance, you've only got one way to get a driving license. You've got to go through the DVLA and there's one process and you can either do it online or you can do it offline or you call. Whereas there are thousands of ways for me to buy some flowers for my mum online and get them delivered to her house, for instance. And that competition, I think, breeds this um, desire to actually invest in good user experiences because there is that choice. Whereas with government, there's not. And I think what that means is government are brilliant at prioritizing usability and accessibility because everyone has to use it. No one should be excluded. Whereas private sector, I find they invest more in creating delightful experiences so people have that desire to come back um, versus in government, I need to make this less painful so that you know, more people can do it and we save money for government by making it more efficient. Mm. Um, so for me, that's the crux of the difference, kind of usability and accessibility versus user experience, creating delightful user experiences. Absolutely. And what I find interesting is in our discipline, user research, kind of government is almost, dare I say, ahead of mm -hmm. the private sector in many cases because you've got a, a UR or multiple URs baked into kind of pretty much every service team. It's a kind of core thing. And when it comes to let's say the GDS service assessment, the sort of primary initial questions are around user research, how do you yes. employ user needs? Whereas in the private sector, perhaps where budgets are tighter and speed is, you know, velocity is more important, it's sort of, oh, well, let, you know, we'll lead with the design and then we'll figure out if people can actually want to use it afterwards, which is kind of like, no, 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 you need to uh, yeah. kind of understand the needs first. And again, exactly. that's a generalisation, but like, that's the impression I get. No, 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 I, I would agree with that. I think from my experience within the private sector it's more driven by like what am I going to get out of this whereas mm. I think um in government the, the beauty of government is they he heavily invest in discovery work which is so admirable you know they mm. take the time to understand the users the needs and I think that goes back to the thing about cost you know in government you've you've got to really think about is is the thing we're proposing going to save money is it going to be any useful for people because ultimately taxpayers are paying for this mm. so in my experience you know government invests a lot in that discovery work doing that upfront 
um, generative research to really inform later stages. Whereas what I've experienced in private sector is they might already have an idea. They kind of want to validate whether our ideas are right or wrong and get more quickly to a thing mm. so that they can get that out quicker. Mm. Um, so yeah, there, there is interesting. I, I think you are right. Government in many ways is ahead in some aspects because we have the things like the wonderful service standard, the service manual to help create processes and standards for us all to kind of deliver really good services which might not exist in private sectors in the same way i'm interested to know what kind of uh, characteristics you think in general make good user researchers mm-hmm. and kind of what kind of skills do you look for when you're when you're recruiting yes so in terms of characteristics i'm looking for people that are curious that are excited that are enthusiastic that are studious, that are methodical, God, the list goes on and on. (laughs) (laughs) But it's really that thing I was talking about before where it's kind of like, I want to see people that get excited about learning something and can find the most mundane things interesting. I'm interested in people that are just constantly curious about people and you know find people weird and wonderful because you know I can get super excited that um, you know Sarah in Scotland goes over here and posts this over here and her colleague does it completely differently I find those differences fascinating about what it means about that person and I'm looking for that in a person I'm, I'm looking for people that are endlessly curious to understand why people are doing things I'm looking for people as well that are good communicators. And, and I often reflect on this because I, I don't want to be exclusion. I don't want to exclude people that might fall more on the introverted spectrum. But I think you do have to be a good communicator and a good influencer to be a, a user researcher who has impact within a product team. Because sometimes it is difficult to convince people to do something so I've I've been in situations really difficult situations where I've had to put my hands up and say to the team I think we've done the wrong thing all of my research suggests that you know we're going down the wrong path had to tell stakeholders that and that is really painful I think user researchers have to have a lot of resilience because you are at the forefront of the product. You are the one that's going out, putting things in front of the users. I've been in, I've been in user research sessions where the users have been downright rude to me mm. in some ways. Um, and then you come back and you've got to break the news to the team. All of these things mean that you've got to have a way of dealing with all of this. I don't want to say negativity, but you know, the the, the things that you bring on, you've got to be able to... Um, find a way of letting them go but also find a way of prioritizing the most important things and sharing those it's it's kind of similar to I I did a little bit of um uh when I was a student I did um what was I a psychology assistant that was it um so I worked with clinical psychologists and one of the things we spent a lot of time doing was um debriefing and having one-to-ones together because of the impact of the sessions you had with people you know it has an impact on you and yourself um and i find you need to do that in research you know you can't, you need to be checking in with your researchers to make sure they're okay because it it is quite a burden to take on having to bring all this feedback in and share it and, you know, if the team doesn't like the feedback you're giving or you've got resistance, you've got to be able to kind of hold your own and say, OK, 
but I'm trying to do the right thing by the user <laughs> and finding those ways can sometimes be really tiring. And if you're not delivering that bad news, let's call it that, to the stakeholders and, and flagging, as you, as you rightly point out, that perhaps this particular path is not the right one, then you're not kind of, you're doing everyone a disservice, aren't you? Because you're going to... Exactly. And, you know, if you're someone that is unable to be that voice and say, awkward <laughs> and you know put your head out it, it probably isn't the profession for you because you you do need to be able to do that and be uncomfortable with being sometimes um the voice of bad news and kind of putting yourself out there to do that and yeah that's so that's really the sort of characteristics I'm looking for are people that are willing to kind of be the voice in a, in a room where you might be the only voice so what advice, based on everything you've said, advice or tips would you give to an aspiring user researcher? Let's say if someone came to you and said, I'm, I don't really know much about this, but I've read a little bit and I'm interested and I'd like to kind of get into this world. Mm. What, what would you say? I would say, ask them, you know, tell them to think about a thing, a problem that they have. And I would get them to think about the different ways, you know, think about or list out all the different things that you hate about this thing or whatever and get them to really start empathizing or potentially a better way would be to get them to start thinking about, you know, something that they don't know a lot about and getting them to go and spend time talking to people about that problem and getting them to really feel immerse themselves in that world and think about what that means for things going forward. Um, for aspiring researchers, I think one of the things that they've got to be most comfortable with is uncertainty. That took me a long while to get comfortable with because mm. <laughs> I wanted, being the sort of person I am, I I struggled with this for a long time. I'm, you know, a chronic people pleaser. So, and one of the things in user research you can't be is a, a people pleaser. Mm. Um, so one of the things that I would tell an aspiring user researcher is you, you need to get comfortable quite quickly with being the person um, who sometimes you're going to have to be the bad person in the room and um, get comfortable with that. Also get comfortable with not knowing everything. One of the best mentors I've ever had was Ting Ting Zhao, who I worked with at GDS. And she, I was, you know, panicking about doing something. And she said, you don't always have to be right, you know, and you can say that. You can say, I don't know. <laughs> And that was a real light bulb moment for me where I felt so much pressure to kind of guide the team in terms of what we were doing. And she said, you don't need to do that. You can just say, I don't know. And I can go and get more evidence. And I think that's the thing you need to do as part of user research is be constantly aware of what you do and don't know and be really transparent about that and come up with ways of, of um, kind of working through that, the unknowns with the team. The I don't know kind of hand up admission is is far better than than faking oh it or gosh. spinning it or coming up with a lot of BS that actually leads nobody any you know doesn't lead to good things at all. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know it's difficult skill to kind of skill is it a skill I don't know, but it's a difficult thing to get used to doing because you taught your whole life that you need to fake it to make it and you know <laughs> do all these things. When actually the most powerful thing to do is say, I don't know, but I can work it out. And that yeah. actually going back to some characteristics I'm looking for in user researchers is that problem solving. Say, okay, you don't yeah. need to know everything. Like I'm not expecting people I work with to have used every single method under the sun. I'm not expecting them to be 
um, masters at creating the most amazing assets. But what I would expect is people that are looking for ways to improve that. So things that they don't know, they care about trying to work out. Um, so that passion in, in, you know, trying to find better ways of doing things. Couple of final points. Where do you see your own career going, Katie? Apart from obviously never leaving CYB, as you said at the beginning, in what kind of ways would you like to develop or kind of progress in your own career? Mm. So I would love, I think, to be some sort of digital leader within government. I think user researchers are the perfect candidates for that, even if I do say so myself. (laughs) Because of the empathy we have, because of the the way that we know how to spot problems, fall in love with those problems and try and work and, and how we know how to bring other people in in order to help create solutions, I think makes really, really good leaders in that space. It also means we're you know consciously thinking of our biases, we're consciously thinking of our assumptions. So I feel like we wouldn't plow ahead with an idea. And also going back to the point I said about being resilient, we're also so used to saying, we're not sure, we're not, we were wrong, we've got the mm. wrong idea here. Um, I feel like all of those skills are really useful in like a, a leadership position, especially in government where you've got big budgets, big projects, mm. lots of things going on, lots of assumptions being made, some of some waste of money. You need people that are able to stick their head above the parapet and say, I think we're doing the right wrong thing. I think we need to change tactic. I think we need to invest in understanding what people are trying to do. So for me, that's where I'd see myself whenever going back into government and trying to influence at kind of that higher level and also bringing more people with our sort of skills into organizations because I think we need far more people like us I think not just in terms of designing products it's just a brilliant way to approach any problem in any situation I think so you know if you're a policymaker, could you use some of the tips and tricks we have in order to inform policy I know there's things like policy labs now which I think are genius but even if you can bring some of that to someone whose job isn't user-centered design, I think it would be a brilliant thing. Brilliant. Yeah, totally agree with all of that. Right. The last thing I'm going to get you to do is my three card challenge. And I've yes. been doing this with everyone. Um, so basically I've got three cards here. You can see it's homemade. They're, they're not, they're not uh, real play cards. So we've got a diamond, we've got a club and we've got a heart. And yes. um, one is a tool, one is a trend and one is a technique. So take your pick. I will go for a heart. So the heart is my tool. Tool. So tell me, uh, what's your favourite UX tool? Your, oh. your go-to UX tool in your day-to-day work. It's it's Miro. Is that really sad? I don't know. It's just that's a I... common that's a common favourite. So yeah. is it? <laughs> no, no, no. But that, nothing wrong with that. It just, I've just you know, well, especially during COVID. There's no better place to get in. If I, if, um, for instance, I don't know what to do, I'll just start going in there and shoving things in there. <laughs> and so inspiration happens. You can see how ideas start coming together as you start organizing things. It's just such a multifaceted tool. You can do everything in there. I can analyze in there. I can get stakeholders in there to look at things. I can start drawing things out. I can create maps in there. I just would be lost without it, Mike. So that, that's my favourite. I feel like we should all be on commission for Miro because oh, <laughs> we, all, we sing its praises so often. Uh, all right, then, next one. Can I have the diamond? Of course you can. Uh, that's a uh, trend. 
a trend so one thing i'm hearing and reading a lot about is mixed methods research in so i think we're gonna get pushed i don't know well certainly something i'm reading a lot about is as part of your research rounds of research using different methods within that round so Mm. meaning um if you're doing interviews to uncover some needs also triangulating that with analytics and triangulating that with a survey um which i think is a good idea but again i don't know whether it's going to be an extra pressure for a user researcher to cut corners and try and shove more stuff into an already pressured environment it's certainly something i'm trying to do more of is find data in whatever nook and cranny I can find to further corroborate my findings or my insights. Mm. Um, but it's certainly something I'm hearing more and more about. It's kind of the mixed methods approach in UX UR. You heard it here first. <laughs> uh, technique. I've already talked about this technique, but mental models in Young, I cannot praise it highly enough. It's just helped me in so many situations where I'm working in really complex environments where it's not linear. So I mentioned the what to do when someone dies. That is not a straightforward, I don't even want to call it a journey because it sounds empathetic, but you know, not a very easy thing to navigate and not everyone does the same things. And I just found that mental models was really able to articulate the different types of tasks, the different types of spaces people will be in, but also importantly, the different types of policy, the different sorts of systems and services that are in place to support people. And, you know, I showed it to stakeholders and I'm like, oh my gosh, because it looks a mess, because it is a mess. (laughs) And it's a really nice way to visually represent, you know, just looking at a chaos of a situation, I think, without even having to say a word, you're like, this is the reality of it. There is so much going on. No wonder why people are overwhelmed. No, and also, what's beautiful is because of the way it's structured with different task towers. You can see, you can literally see on there where there's massive gaps in services. So there might be some sort of task that's completely unsupported, and you can spot it really quickly as ah, there's an opportunity where we can have some real impact. Um, so it is one of my most beloved techniques is the mental models and it goes back to what you're saying before about uncertainty and and being comfortable with uncertainty particularly kind of when you're starting out and uh the, the the government sort of services that we've been working on very much kind of taking existing paper-based processes mm. that are often very messy and inefficient and trying to kind of create a much more holistic and, and yes user-friendly way of doing completing that task mm-hmm it's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you, Katie. Thank you so much for sharing all your insights. Thanks for listening to the Understanding Users podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, do please like or comment wherever you're listening and feel free to share it more widely. Join me again next time and I'll be talking to Andy Curry, UX Director at digital agency Lion & Mason. I'll be hearing about his experiences managing and supporting a team of UX researchers and designers as they design, test and deliver end-to-end product design to their clients. Until then, stay safe and stay user-centred.